Uh, we're going to do a, a little bit of unpacking, uh, what we heard, our opportunity for you to ask some questions. I kind of want to start with, I, I heard this, I think David Koch is the first place that I, I heard this, but you, you don't want to just do something and ask God to bless it. You want to find out what God's doing and get involved in it. I think that's, when we're talking about agreement, that's kind of what we're talking about. What, what is God up to? What's, what's God's desire for us? So uh, my question, first question, what, talk to us a little bit about the danger of doing your own thing. What does that mean to you? Yeah, uh, wow. Uh, you know, this whole session was really the, the implicit backdrop of that was the, the antithesis of it. And that's not setting yourself in agreement with a group, but doing your own thing. I, mean, I, I guess in fairness, there are times when we do have to be go against the tide. The truth is the great discoveries of this country and of science have all been precipitated by people who march to the beat of a different drummer. I, I'm not denying the value in, and even the anointing God gives entrepreneurial type leaders, you know, that have a revelation. You know, I mean, some that come to mind, Martin Luther, you know, I mean, great revelation. Everyone in Europe largely were Catholic. Yeah. And he, on his own, said, no, wait a minute, this, it's the priesthood of the believer, and we've, we've used the mechanization of the church to control the people instead of introduce them into relationship with God. That doesn't mean everything he did was right or everything he thought was right, but yet it was a big deal. So I understand the value of that. But I think in a church setting, when we set ourselves in agreement, it is so powerful, and the danger is that you just can't, you're only going to ever get done what you can accomplish with your best efforts as long as you're insistent on doing your own thing. Plus, it's really kind of the opposite of the heart of God. I mean, when someone is so stubborn, if God hasn't placed them in that senior leadership role, and I would say this about leadership in the kingdom, a leadership authority, let's say it this way, is not power, it's responsibility. Everybody wants power, but when, when you come to Jesus, he's not passing out titles, he's passing out towels. And so everyone wants power, but they don't want the responsibility. So when we're talking about God gives, you know, I think it was Wallace, the reformer in Scotland back in the day that told the, the Queen of England, God makes when she questioned his right to, to do it, God makes men what they are. And, and so, you know, I, I, I get that. I mean... And when God gives that level of responsibility and then brings you under the covering of someone with that mission, then the appropriate kingdom response is to align yourself and not insist. If you have a good idea, share it. If you have, you know, in an appropriate environment, share that idea. It's, you know, when a leader doesn't listen to people that are part of the constituents, that mean, you know, that's a foolish thing to do. To just say, well, I have no clue, I have no interest in what they think I've heard from God, it's my way or the highway. That's immature and foolish on the other side. On the executive side, that's a foolish position to have. But then there are times where we don't always agree and we have to make that choice. I talked about in the opening monologue about which Adam am I going to align myself with. And so having that trust and that confidence to say, okay, I don't really see that. As I mentioned, it's not my preference. But, but, you know, it's, it's you know, like worship today. I mean, it's changed so much and evolved. And the fact is, I love worship. I love it. And I've learned to love it in any genre if the heart and the spirit of it brings glory to God. Amen. So I'm, I may go to churches. I'm in different churches all over this nation. And some of them, it's still more traditional and more kind of uh, older school. And some are out on the super edge, you know. <laughs> 
And you know what? If Jesus is being worshipped up in there, even if I need a magic decoder ring in a thesaurus, I'm going to just like, okay, <laughs> open me up, God, give it to me because I'm here to worship you. It's not about me. So I think people who are insistent on their way, it causes me to wonder who they're worshipping. Because worship by its very definition suggests a subordination of my will. And you say, was that biblical? Jesus did it that way. He, can I say this about Jesus? He was obsessed with the will of God. By his own words, if I can say that about Jesus and say he's obsessed with anything, he was obsessed. I've come to do the will of him who sent me and finish the work he sent me to do. When I came into this city yesterday, as I was driving in, my prayer was, I've come to do your will and finish the work you sent me to do. I didn't fully understand what that is and may not till I leave. May not even after I leave. But my mission is not to do my will, bring my agenda, but rather to come and do the will of God and finish the work he sent me to do. He told the disciples with a woman of well experience, he said, my meat is to do the will of him who sent me. So here we have Jesus as an example who it was never my way, my way, my way, my way. As a matter of fact, the grand prayer, the great prayer that Jesus prayed in Gethsemane is not my will, but thy will be done. Is a monumental leap for a leader to be able to pray sincerely that prayer. It's a powerful prayer. Good. I've got, I've got, uh, I have four or five more questions of my own, but I want to get, I want to get your questions answered. And so, if you've got those, pass them up. I'm going to start. I've got first one here. When, when you talk about promises, how do you know the specifics of them? To have faith and walk them out. Okay, so some promises are delineated in the Scripture. Right? We know that Jesus placed a high premium on the value and power of Scripture. Um, their Scripture, obviously, was the Old Testament. It, the New Testament hadn't been written. It was being written, or, or at least experienced, and would be written uh, fairly shortly. Matthew, Mark, and Luke written fairly early. Mark, perhaps the earliest gospel. John later in the, the first century. Uh, and then Paul's letters you know, in that same time frame. But they didn't have the New Testament, so their scripture was exclusive of the Old Testament. But yet, if you look at the content, the, the level of quoting of scripture that Jesus does or alludes to from the Old Testament, it's astounding. So much of the content, the literary content in the Gospels are recording Jesus speaking of the scripture. So <clears throat> I think first and foremost, promises of God that are spelled out in scripture, then those, we, we stand on those. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Would you read that question again? In other words, if, yeah. if, he, if his word, I mean, simply, if his word says it, I believe it. Mm-hmm. That's just my, that's where I'm at. I try not to explain it away with some, I always tell people never let tragedy redefine your theology. Mm-hmm. Right. That's good. That's good. And sometimes we can do that. We'll have a tragic moment in our life and it causes us to change everything we believe. Don't let tragedy or your empirical experience define the truth of what God's word, that's why faith is necessary. We say, I see it, it says it, and I believe it. Whether I have fully experienced it or not, I believe it. Then I think we can't discount the work of the Holy Spirit in our life because Jesus himself, so the night Jesus is betrayed, I love the gospel of John. I said, like I said, we'd just gone through a study of it. Did you know that a fifth or more of the gospel of John is written about one night? Roughly one night. So from about John chapter 13 through the balance of the book, it's all written about the conversation Jesus has with his disciples the night he's betrayed. 
if you look at the literary content there, subject matter, the majority of the subject matter from Jesus was about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He never mentions the cross and never mentions his resurrection. So what's on Jesus' mind the night he's betrayed is, man, when the Holy Spirit comes. He is totally pushing the disciples' purview, their view, their perspective to what's going to come, not what he's about to endure. You know, it's amazing with that. So we can't discount the work of the Holy Spirit in terms of us appropriating and believing the promise. Some of this stuff I've described is really beyond your flesh. And I saw your hand back there. I'll get there and say, it's beyond your flesh. You have to surrender and let the Holy Spirit stand in that faith through you. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I see a promise and sometimes it just doesn't look like that's panning out in my life. I think you reach an end of your flesh's ability to agree and you say, okay, now Holy Spirit, you'll have to believe through me in much the same way that the Holy Spirit would pray through us. What is he, how does the Holy Spirit pray through us? According to the will of God. So if you ever, you know, when you pray in the spirit, you disconnect your mental ascent and your rational faculties in subordination to the pure will of God. And it allows you to pray the purest prayer, even though you don't understand it necessarily with your natural mind. So I think when we're standing in the promises of God, it's what the scripture says, and then how the Holy Spirit brings a witness of our spirit that I'm standing and and believing, waiting for the fulfillment of that. Was there a comment? She she had her hand back. Yeah, and I would, what's your name? I'm Jennifer. Jennifer, okay, Jennifer. What I would say is that's where we rely on the Holy Spirit. Because, you know, there are some things that are just broad. You know, the blessing of the Lord maketh one rich and addeth no sorrow at all. I mean, that's a problem. There, there are promises in the Scripture. But then when we're saying, okay, how do I appropriate that in my life? You know, uh, when I don't have riches or I don't have, you know, and I think there's, there is that that work of the Holy Spirit where you, again, surrender to His will and just say, okay, God, I'm trusting you. I don't know how this is going to happen. I don't know. You know, I'm not going to try to make it happen. We know that's not always a good thing. Ask Abraham about that, you know. It didn't work out so well. You know, he, Abraham walked in the promise 25 years. It was 25 years after Abram received the promise and God waited till there was no physical hope, <laughs> right? I mean, when God had given the promise, it arguably could be said Sarah could have conceived maybe. But God waited. He gave the promise when flesh could have done it and waited till there was no hope except be supernatural. And I think we walk that same path sometimes. But the scripture said, and I love grace because the, the, the filter we see in the New Testament is Abraham staggered not at the promise of God. And I'm thinking, okay, what's that business in the tent with Hagar about? You know, he staggered not at the promise of God, you know. But yet God's grace is at work. So I I would say the word of God that speaks to us, the Holy Spirit that guides us, and then the grace of God that works in us have to be a three tandem cord to help us appropriate the promises of God. But if a promise is given by God, it is okay for you to claim that promise whether you ever see the physical fulfillment of it in the natural or not. 
And it's hard for us because we live in the natural, right? We have our five senses and we kind of judge everything based on what we can say, t- see, touch, taste, feel. But, but we have to remember that this is it's kind of like light, you know? In other words, we judge our world by what we can see between red and violet. Well, that's not denying that there's this infinite spectrum of light and color that's going on around us. We're just not sensitized to see it. So sometimes I think the promises of God are happening, and we just don't see it in the dimension that we're living in. And that's where faith kicks in and says, God, I can't see my children. They're not back yet. But you've promised me that if I raise them in the way they should go, that when they're old, they will not depart from that. It may happen beyond my purview. But it's going to happen because your word will not return void or empty, but will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. Not to preach at you, but, but yeah. Does that, does that help? Okay. Awesome. All right, here's a two-part question here. Explain why people pray, I come into or out of agreement with, and does it require a verbal expression? Explain why people pray, I come into or out of agreement with, does it require a verbal expression? So I, I think that's kind of where I started with the will. I think that's how you come into or out of agreement. And I think you can enter agreement and then uh, move into disagreement. If that weren't true, 50% of our marriages wouldn't be ending in divorce. You know, uh, it'd be nice if agreements were forever, but people are notoriously prone to change their minds about things. And again, you experience something disappointment comes, unrealized expectations weren't met, and you become disillusioned. People talk about losing their faith. It can happen. People can stop believing. And so I think that is basically I move into agreement. When I hear truth and I set myself in agreement, that's a religious code for saying I agree with that being the truth. But there's a moment that can happen in your life where you say I don't think that was true anymore. So I think that happens, and I think that's the fight of faith that Jude talks about and that Paul talks about, where Jude talks about earnestly contending for the faith that was once delivered to the fathers. But also Paul talks about fighting the good fight of faith. There is a war, and I kind of took a little time to describe it at the beginning of my message about the two atoms. You can be filled with the Holy Ghost and saved and speak in tongues every five minutes but there's still an ally with the enemy in your body called your flesh. And you're constantly confronted with these willful decisions as to what Adam you're going to be aligned with. And that's not a one-time decision. It's a multiple-layered, constant, daily, circumstantial decision that we all have to make where we decide, okay, I know what I just experienced, and I could be offended, but that's old Adam, the new Adam the truth is the new Adam's dead. I mean, the, the old Adam's dead if I'm in Christ, right? Because here's something I think as Christians it helps us if we understand, particularly as it comes to navigating offense. Jesus didn't just die for your sins. He died as you. He didn't just die for you. He died as you. And it's, you say, well, I've never heard anything like that. Well, I, I get it. I mean, that's kind of a new concept, but it's not new. If you read Romans 6, Paul said that as many as have been baptized in Christ have been baptized into his death. And that whole treatise we make about sin, and it's not about sin. It's about the position of the believer in the dead body of Jesus on the cross. 
Now, why is that important? Because we lose a lot of our prerogatives when we're dead. A lot of our preferences become inconsequential when we are legitimately dead. Paul says in another place, it's this way. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I that live. And, and that's, you can finish that. Uh, Corinthians, he says, for the, uh, what, chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for the love of Christ compels us, for we reckon thus. In other words, in the Greek, it's we have analyzed it and drawn this conclusion. We reckon thus. If one died for all, then all died. We want to quote two verses later where he says, therefore... If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things have become new. We all quote that. We don't set it up in context. That is all in the context of co-crucifixion, having died with Jesus Christ. So a lot of people want the new creation without the death of the old man. And that's all where the will is transactional in that process. You know, we have to realize he died not just for me, but as me. Now I am... A new creation. Here's what he said. Therefore, if any man or woman be in Christ, he is a new creature. Not after the first Adam. That's my, my history, but not my future. I am now a new creation in Christ Jesus. Right? So that's the basic idea. The basic idea. I'm a new creature. The, the old things have passed away is not the things I used to do. It's who I used to be. It's who I used to be. So I guess I'll go through that little kind of teaching because it has so much to do about our will and the decisions we make and how we believe the promises of God because there's a way that seems right to man, but the end of that way is the flood. That's Adam's way, the first Adam's way. That last Adam's way says, I trust God. He says it. I believe it. I'm willing to die on that hill if necessary, and people have. (laughs) I'm willing to die. You know, I, I don't require an incredibly clear manifestation of a fulfillment of the promise to believe that God's word is true Amen. for me. Yeah. 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 Joe, well, go ahead. Really, so you talk about divine appointments. The verse of the day is death and life are in the power of the tongue. Mm. And they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. And you talk about the contract that we have to sign. And God was really stirring this in me this morning, even before you spoke, and it aligns so well with what you're saying because, you know, we, to put it another way, when we agree with First Adam, the way I was seeing it this morning is we agree with our emotions. <laughs> and something happens to us like you, you alliterated. And, and so what, I've, what I'm learning, what God is showing me, is that I have to refuse what my emotions are telling me. I, I, you know, that tree may, may look good for food and pleasant to my eyes, but that partaking of that tree is going to lead me down a disastrous path. Right. And so what I'm learning is that with my mind, with the spirit, I have to make a choice. And so... <laughs> I believe one of the greatest superpowers that God has given us is the power to forgive. Mm-hmm. But I will never feel my way into forgiveness. No, you won't. So what I've learned and, and what I've just caught myself doing is when I feel everything inside of me wanting to rage against someone, 
whether it's my wife, my kids, you know, co-worker, I will stop and make a choice to say out loud, I choose to forgive whoever it is. And, you know, just like this verse is saying, in that moment, and what the question is asking, do I need to, you know, make this a statement out loud? And I've found that there's tremendous power in that. And Scripture is telling me that the power of death and life are in my tongue. So I'm kicking that contract into gear that I'm deciding to agree with the Spirit to forgive that person and release the power of forgiveness in the life. Yeah, amen. Totally good. And I totally agree. You know, I think it was Dr. Martin Luther King that said, and I'm going to butcher the quote, but it, the gist of it is this, that as long as unforgiveness prevails, men will be forced to, to bow at the altar of revenge. And, and, it, and that's that famous quote where he goes on that love, hate, can't, love can't, uh, hate can't drive out. You know, that, it's a powerful quote. But it begins by saying something to the effect that as long as, un, as long as unforgiveness prevails, we refuse to forgive each other our offenses, that men will be forced to bow at the altar of revenge. Powerful thought, powerful statement. And I, and I think that's totally true. You, you've kind of hit on something because there are certain keys that open up spiritual realities and forgiveness is one of them it because it's so foreign to the natural mind that's what dr king was trying to say that you know that you do me wrong i'm going to get you back you, you know you're, you're going to get yours that that's the way of the world and that's what draws us to that altar of revenge instead of releasing love to drive out hate you know that and and i think the key there in what you're saying is forgiveness opens up this window kind of what i was talking about it's a, it's a match that strikes the log of God's grace in our life because it's hard to experience the God's grace for me if I've been unforgiven toward other people. I want to, the last part of that question, does it require a verbal expression? I would say yes, it does, but it requires something deeper than that, something deeper. Um, Dr. Phil is a man with a lot of great wisdom, if you haven't ascertained that this morning. Um, picked him up at the hotel took, we went to dinner last night, we were driving around we were, we were talking and he was asking questions, they were on purpose and he was he was doing an exam on your pastor <laughs> how's your pastor's health you know, how's your walk, how's, how's it going with leadership, how's the transition going, he's asking these questions and, and he and, and a lot of guys aren't keen enough to do this he asked a question about my wife How's your wife doing? How's she handling the transition? He, he cares about where my wife's at and how she's doing in this. And then he asked about my kids and how they're handling transition. He was asked questions. He was checking up on things. He was deep diving to see where we're at. And in that conversation, he, he asked, you know, are your kids settling in? How, how are they doing? And I, I told him, you know, the story. Uh, they, they were not happy at all about leaving Minnesota. They had uh, great friends. They were in a good school. Our youth group was strong. They were well connected into our church. They, I mean, uh, everybody in our church, young and old, were their friends, and they loved it there. And so to leave everything that had been comfortable to them and familiar to them for two years and to come to a strange place, strange faces, um, all, all the way here, I don't want to go, Dad. We don't want to move to Indiana. All the way through. And we, we tried every trick you can imagine. <laughs> I mean, when, on our visits, before COVID, when we were visiting, 
We took them to fun things. We tried to show them the cool stuff about this area. We, we tried every trick to try to trick them that this was going to be an awesome experience. You know, God was leading them into the land of you know, flowing with milk and honey. I mean, we, we, we tried to convince them. But they weren't convinced. And, and then we, we got here, and for months, I'm talking six months, up, up until spring break, I want to go back to Minnesota. As soon as I turn 18, I'm moving. I'm out of here when I graduate. We, we heard that, especially our oldest, too. So uh, we asked them at spring break, where, where do you want to go? We'll take you to the beach. No, we want to go to Minnesota. We'll go see our friends. How about we get a cabin in the mountains? And do, you know, no, we want to go to Minnesota. I, I offered them every option. They wanted to go to Minnesota. And so we, we took them to Minnesota. When, when we got there, we, we connected them up with their friends, and we were at one of their friends' parents' homes, and all the kids were gathered in, and our kids were there. And Rachel and I were headed out for a night while they hung out with their friends. And we left, and we recognized that something had changed and that our kids were just absolutely awkward in that environment. And we knew. And we, we, we just prayed. <laughs> As we left, we prayed, Lord, let this be the moment. Let this be the moment. And, you know, since we've gotten back from that spring break trip, we have not one time heard them talk about moving back to Minnesota. What, yeah. what happened? What happened? They, they were not in agreement with moving to Indiana. But now something shifted in their heart. Right? So it, is it verbal? Yes, it is. But it's also, it is of our will. Our will has to be in agreement. And we can, we can come to a church and be disgruntled, not really be in agreement with the vision, but we, we, we're in the car, but we're not really in agreement, and we're, we're saying all the right things. But under the surface, there's, there's something that eventually is going to boil up. Isaiah, Isaiah God, God through Isaiah, he said, you know, these people, they draw near me with their lips, but their hearts are right. far removed from me. You know, so, so the, you know, being in agreement with God, yes, it is a verbal thing. And, and what's in our heart will come out, right? Out of the abundance of our hearts, our mouths speak. But sometimes those words are just a camouflage for what's not really in our heart. It, it has to be a heart thing. Something in our heart has to shift to align with the will and the purposes of God. Become in agreement with so God. So good. So good. Could I just throw a couple of additional ideas about that? What part does the mouth play? The scripture says, with the heart man believes. Right? That's how we get saved. The heart man believes unto righteousness. But with the mouth, confession is made. Right? Mm -hmm. So there's this connection, God knows, between the heart and the mouth. Yeah. You know? And and I think that it's not just getting saved. I think everything in the kingdom works that way. We believe it first in our heart, and then we speak it. We believe it, and we speak it. And and that's that's an important part. As a matter of fact, when you think about we, when I was raised and talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the initial evidence of that was speaking in other tongues. I don't know that we had that right or not, but it was something powerful about something coming out of your mouth that was going on in your heart. And I think both at the at the salvation level and that baptism in the Holy Spirit, there we see that. And and what you're kind of speaking to people, kind of being. On you know a present but not on board, so to speak, that we all have led teams where not everybody had bought in. We call it. There's a lot of things we say. Well, they hadn't bought in, and sometimes people need a little time to buy in, and we we give them the latitude for that. Yeah. But a great team, a team that's highly motivated, highly effective, and highly efficient, moves, matures 
from cooperation to collaboration. Like if you're looking at lower levels of team operation, there's people say, well, I don't get it. I don't see it, but I'm not going to hard it. I'm not going to stand in the way. I'm, I'm going to cooperate. Well, that, thank God for people who are, thank God they're not, not uncooperative. But if you really want to be part of the thriving forward motion of the team, then mature from cooperation to collaboration. That's where I'm not just getting my orders, but everybody, this energy that we've talked about today is being released into the flow of that team where it's not just me standing by watching to see how it turns out. I am in the game. You know, that's a mature way of moving to a high-powered, high-octane team is when we move from cooperation to collaboration. Another one of those is where we move from information to communication. So we, that's another session, but we could talk about how teams mature. And one of those things is when we just share data versus when we are really finding that arena of communication. It's a maturing process. And so cooperation versus collaboration, that happens in the heart. Yeah. i got some more questions here, but before we move on from this, what, what are some things, you know, in, in a church culture, what are, what are things that are disruptive to the agreement in a, in a church, to the collaboration, to unity? What are, what are some of the things that are common that come in to destroy? Yeah. And okay, so I, I mean a few that come to mind without even comment don't require common gossip. Mm-hmm. You know, that there's no good. People say, well, you know, it's like let's, let's talk about it at prayer group. You, you know, it's, it's, it's not. It's, if, if we pray for it in the context of gossiping, that's, <laughs> that's, that doesn't get you a pass. It's still gossip, you know. The motive of the heart is what defines gossip. And, and I think any time, you know, like I, I've worked with a ton of leaders who've gone through stuff, myself included. There's some things I'll tell, some things I won't because that's their story to tell. Our daughter struggled with, with alcoholism and addiction for years after her mom passed. And she's just gone through a rehab program, the third one. But, man, God got a hold, changed her life. Yes, she's working with us now. But there's a story behind the brokenness that little girl walked in after finding her mother dead in our bedroom. And, and, and that process, it was a process God was working in her. And we celebrate that today. But it, it was a process, you know. It was a process. And so I lost my train of thought, but I'm not sure why I even went there. But anyway, um, what, what, what was I talking about? Do you know? uh, things disruptive. Oh, disruptive, yeah. So that's her story to tell. Now, she's written it in a magazine. Matter of fact, one of these magazines has got her full story in it. And I would encourage you to grab it. It's last fall and, and read it. Incredible story. But, uh, but that, that's her story to tell. I think telling someone else's story out of turn is disruptive. And you, you might not get it right, and you might cause pain. And so the words you say can be disruptive to that level of agreement. I mean, that's just kind of the accidental things. There are nefarious things we can do where we're really not in agreement, and we, as you said, said the right things and smiled, and, but we'd really in our heart it was never there. And that always comes out over time, especially when pressure comes. As pressure rises, what's in us really tends to come out. And, uh, and, you know, not being nice. Anybody vote for nice? I mean, I, it, sometimes it's just pure being a nice person. Uh, that that should, ne- should never be said of a believer that that person is not a nice person. I mean, if anything, the Holy Spirit ought to do in us is make us sweet. Amen. If you're a crabby or a crotchety young or old man or woman, that's not the Holy Spirit working in you. Just, I'll just give you a, the clue. 
you know, and, and everybody around you knows it. So it's not, you don't have to wear a badge that says, I'm a mean person. Everybody knows whether you are or not. So attitudes, that's what I'm trying to say. Your attitude, discipline your attitude and not giving yourself the luxury of being a creep. And that's strong words, but you know what I'm talking about. We've all been around them. And it's like sometimes those people gravitate to the front door. I don't know how it happens, but it's like they just this spiritual Geiger counter or something. It's like, what, it's like, you know, if you're at the door, smile. Be happy about what God's done in your life, what he's doing in the church. And, and people will decide in that first five, ten seconds. It won't be the first praise song. It won't be the first message. They'll decide by the time they walk in the door and get to their seat if they're ever coming back again. And why? how is that possible? By largely the countenance on the people's face. It's just, be, be, as a leader, it is incumbent upon you to be aware that you have the responsibility, no matter what's going on in your life, that when Sunday is, every Sunday is Christmas, this church is the North Pole and the pastor Santa Claus, and you have got to, you have got to put on that Christmas attitude when you get here. And you say, well, that's, you're asking me to be phony. No, I'm just asking you to walk in faith. We all have problems, we all have challenges, we all have difficulties, and I understand how natural it is to fall into the old Adam. So there's nothing, there's nothing condemning about that. I'm not trying to do that. I'm just saying, be aware. And so you're asking about things that can disrupt. I think sometimes my countenance, my attitude, the words I say, just simple nuts and bolts stuff, you know, and, and just not giving yourself a pass. David said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. I, this is the day the Lord hath made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. You know, just, just that checkup, you know, go to the mirror before you leave and just make sure, you know, it's not so much what you're wearing. It's just, am I displaying the attitude of Christ because people's eternal destiny could be counting on it. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> Pastor Randy, saw your hand go up. This. I want to get this on the recording too. Renee and I have been at our church for 24 years and gone through a number of transitions. Um, there's a, a joke about a guy who was out playing golf with his best friend and lightning struck his best friend and killed him on like the third tee box. So at the funeral, people gathered around the other golfer and said, man, I bet that wrecked your day. He said, from that point on, it was hit the ball and drag Charlie. Hit yeah. the ball and drag... <laughs> okay. And <clears throat> so... The last thing I think a pastor wants to do is hit the ball and drag Charlie. Okay, it's a very difficult thing. You don't want to leave anybody behind, but some people are just in drag mode. And I, I need you to hear me for just a minute because I don't, I'm not being paid to say this in any way, form, or fashion. But I, I do believe that when you are in leadership and God speaks to you and gives you a direction. One thing I tell people when they come to our church and they vet us to the best of their ability. They go through our growth track process and, and uh, say, we want to be involved. I call them into the office and I say, I really do want you here. And, and, and I think you're a great fit. Um, but I have a prerequisite. You need to give me a certain amount of time to recover from a bad decision. Because I'm going to make them. It's inevitable. I'm human. I'm going to do my best. But if I make a bad decision, you need to already have it in your mind proactively. Mm. I'm going to give my pastor a chance to recover from a bad decision. Okay? 
And I think that helps. It really does help when somebody's just like, I'm going to cheer my pastor on. I know he's human. I know he's going to make mistakes at times, okay? But trusting the pastor's heart, trusting the leader's heart, and, and I have, I've had the privilege of meeting your pastors and, and find them to be very sincere and very genuine. I've had time to pray with them, and, and I just love what I feel here in this place. And I think uh, Dr. Brassfield said it well, it's Christmas. He's Santa. Just, you know, and, uh, you, you know um, and I think that that's so crucial that, that we all understand there's so much to be grateful for. Amen. Their church is shutting down around the country because of COVID. I have a stepbrother that's got a double doctorate, had to shut his church, completely shut it down, selling the facility. Okay. If you're still having church and you've got this kind of worship going on. Amen. Come on. Amen. Amen. Yeah, that's a great point, Pastor uh, Randy. Leaders don't always get it right, and we need grace. We do have a responsibility, but we need grace. And I'll tell you what, if we study the Scripture, they didn't always get it right either. We tend to kind of deify the Apostle Paul, but one of the greatest mistakes of the Apostle Paul's life came toward the end of his life, potentially, and the Holy Spirit stopped him. He got the beating of his life. So he's going back to Jerusalem, right? And the pressure of the Judaizers in Jerusalem are to pay for the sacrifice that's associated with the Nazarite vow for some of the men, high-profile men. They're completing a vow. And we want you to pay for their sacrifice as a witness that you're not demolishing everything as you're preaching around the Mediterranean theater. And Paul agrees to do it. That sacrifice was a sin offering. Paul gets to the outer court in the process of paying and participating in doing something that would have systematically dismantled everything he preached and taught for his career. Now, we know he's en route to Rome as a prisoner, but he's about to make a cataclysmic mistake. I believe that before it happened, and the textual evidence would suggest that, that there was a riot that broke out. He got the beating of his life, learned his lesson stopped and preached on his way up the steps of the fortress of Antonio and preached Jesus and him crucified again. But he did not. Sometimes the pressures that we all deal with can cause us to make a mistake, even though we're full of the Holy Ghost. And because I go back to that, we all have that atom in us. As long as we're breathing, we still have that. So I think that's a great word. Giving a pastor the room to make a mistake or a bad decision and then not just instantly deleting them is important because we can all and do make mistakes yeah you're right yeah yeah i appreciate that and i need that i need grace right and we're hearing all kinds of pastor randy shared the story of his brother but we're hearing all kinds of stories like that right now i heard of a he's a 50 year old man pastoring a church of 500 people february 1st he got up and said at the end of the month i'm done his board asked him, what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to get a, I'm going to go back to college, finish my degree. I'm going to get an easy job. That was his response. It's not always easy. We need grace. Amen. You guys have shown that. You've shown love. Yeah. And I appreciate your prayers. We need prayer. Amen. You've been and, pretty uh, gracious with your time today. Yeah, very. For a um, long-winded preacher. <laughs> absolutely. But the, um, Prayer. Pray, pray for your pastors. Pray, pray for the leaders of our church. Um, 
couple couple Thursday nights ago, I snuck into the. Try, I tried to sneak into the back and hide so no one knew I was there into the prayer meeting Thursday night. But somewhere close to the end of the meeting, they gathered around me and laid hands on me and prayed for me, and I felt just such a release, a weight come off. It was powerful. Amen. Powerful. Amen. When you guys pray for us, it, it makes a difference. Amen. I, I was I was talking to a, a pastor yesterday. He said we we during during COVID we've we've canceled our midweek, and we're just praying, and it has transformed our church. And I just said to him, it's amazing that how how prayer actually works, isn't it? <laughs> it does. It really does, and we we need your prayers. Amen. So appreciate it. I'm going to ask give get one more question here, and we're going to turn you loose. I'm going to need uh, somebody with the gift of interpretation on this first part. Uh, when is explaining and complaining in the house of God? I don't know. Somebody want to explain? Who, I don't know if, who, who gave this question. What's to Scott? Was that you? Yes. Okay. Yeah. When, is, uh, when you're explaining the situation or something that you're going through that you might not be all bored with, that a decision has been made, when are you just trying to explain where you are at, or when it's complaining? Right. Does that make sense? That's good. Yeah, it does. I, Go ahead. So, Scott, my, my thought on that is it's the motive of the heart. It's whether the question or the comment is being presented in a, a passive resistant resistance or a need for clarification. You, you know, I think the posture is always important. I mean, you know, I, I, for, for me in my life, I want to always have the posture of a student. And you know, the writer of the scripture in the Old Testament says, let me speak the language of the learned. But actually, if you look at the Hebrew, it's the language of a disciple. And I think therein kind of keys the posture. So even though everything we say may not be positive, it may be, it may feel confrontational, but if in my heart, it's the language of a disciple, I don't see this. Help me. If you can show me, that's a different Attitude, you know, than someone who comes in in anger with a with a an axe to grind, so to speak, over something. And so, I, I you know, it's we're people. It's never going to be a hundred percent agreement on everything, you know. And in this season, the truth is, we've seen that on steroids, right? I mean, there's so many things that we can disagree about. And the fact is, I have to tell you, some of the stuff that we've all gone through here in the country, I have learned exponentially more than I knew about some of the issues that we've been confronted with. And I pray, I feel like I'm going to be better as a result. Though there were moments where it created conflict inside of me and I had to sort it out. I think that happens in the church as well. And we have to allow grace for that. So it's not just a matter of, oh, I can't say, we, it's not this robotic, oh, we got to say the same thing, be the same thing, you know, and we're all, that's not it. It's having a heart of a student and saying, okay, let's look to Scripture here. And then if it's not in the Scripture, but it's in your purview of authority and God seated you, then, and here's how I would say, uh, Scott, one last thing about disagreement. I always tell people that I think submission is important, but it goes only to the violation of my conscience. So when someone demands that I submit to something that violates my conscience, we're going to have a talk. You see what I'm saying? And so I think that's kind of where the, 
you know, the heart should be. I, I think within that spectrum, then we do everything we can do to submit to leadership and say, hey, this is who God said over me, and I'm going to do that. But when they suggest something or lead in a way that is dishonoring to God or, in, or law or whatever and violates my conscience, then I do have the right to say, I, I, I love you, but I can't. I'm not going to let it break my love, but I am not going to agree nor go along with it either. You know, that's just my take. And, you, and I subordinate myself to your headship here. So you disagree or you speak to that, but, yeah. but that's my thought. Yeah, I, I completely agree. For me, for me that, that comes when it begins to violate the Word of God, when it be, begins to violate the, the, um, the person of Jesus Christ, when it grieves the Holy Spirit. That's that's one that we have to have a check, and I have to I have to stay just because somebody has has crossed that line doesn't give me the right to take an axe to them. I've got to I've got to deal with that situation in humility, right? If if somebody's leading me in a way that I I, I see violates my conscience, I, I have to approach it with humility. I, I have to go considering myself first, and then humbly approach them. Why are we going this way? Can can we rethink this? Can we go in a different direction? And if it comes to the point where they say, no, we're going to persist, and this is going against what we know is right, true, good, and honorable, then I'm sorry, but I just can't participate. Yeah. Darren? I think um, one of the main things that you were addressing is, what's the difference between communication and criticism? So are you seeking for clarification, or are you, or you just want your That's opinion? That's good. Right. I just want to share my opinion. I want to criticize and walk away. Well, that's not communication. That's right. It's certainly not healthy. And number two, if you've been actually uh, testing Pastor Chad, we'd like to know the grade. You're going to have to pay to see the results. Yeah. <laughs> Julie? The Word of God says if, if we're approaching our pastors, we're supposed to approach them as a father. Mm. And it doesn't matter that I'm senior to you in age. You're still my pastor. And so the, if, I, if I need to come to you and I need that clarification, I don't, I don't agree, help me to understand. That's how I would approach my natural father. I don't, I don't understand where you're going with it. Mm. Help me to understand yeah. So if, if we look at, and that's what the Word of God says. Yeah. And, and there's, you know, there's, there's a difference between our lack of understanding and somebody doing what is immoral, wrong. There's a difference. And, and when it's sometimes out of the realm of our understanding, we can't comprehend why are we going this way. That, that's times when we, we have to trust. We're, we're not trusting that leader. We're trusting the Lord and the Holy Spirit to, uh, to understand God's delegated authority, that he entrusts men with authority in his kingdom and we have a responsibility as Dr. Phil said that that's really what it's about it's not about power control any of that it's about having a there's a responsibility that I'm going to have to give an account one day right. for the way that I have led so when, when we see our leaders going in a way that we don't understand if it, if it isn't immoral or you know outside of the realm of God's kingdom we, we can move we, we don't get it we're painting it this color I don't get it but I don't understand it I can live with it you know, something I think for clarity is, is from a leadership standpoint. Um, change is part of our job. You know, that's, notice anything that's living, the basic vital sign of life is, is not your heartbeat. I mean, it's your respiration largely. And that respiration is change. Uh, you're a nurse. You, you would probably attest to that, that if a body's not changing, then it's dead. Mm. 
But who likes change? Yeah. I mean, no, Minager said, Minager said that 70% of every social group view change as loss followed by pain and anguish. So part of our job to lead a church requires change, knowing that 7 out of 10 people are going to naturally process it as loss followed by pain and anguish. Now, is this an in, insurmountable problem? No. <laughs> no. <Yeah. laughs> um, because that's leadership. Our leadership responsibility is to introduce change in such a way that people can see the future is safer. Largely people resent, resist change because of a fear of losing security. Right. 70% of every social group are S-style basic personalities in a disc profile. And consequently they process it. The filter is loss. So as a leader, whether you're leading a small group or you're in a department in the church, as a leader, part of your job is going to be to introduce change. But there's a little template that I use. I've mentioned it to your pastor. I use it everywhere I go. It's like do your homework. It's okay to ask people to change, but know, know what's going on. How do you do that? What's the template? Number one, why are we doing this? Why? Number two, what are we going to do? Don't get up there and say, leaders fumble the ball and change a lot of times because they haven't answered these simple questions and stayed with it till they had clear, concise answers. So they know there's a why. There's a reason we need change. We just don't know what in the world we're going to do. Why, what, how, when, where, who. Why, what, how, when, where, who. And if a leader will do their homework and answer those questions and then find a creative way to present those answers to the people, it will calm the fear of losing security, and you can greatly diminish the subtle resistance of a high percentage of the congregation. Mm -hmm. Because all they're concerned with is, are we going to be secure in this new future that you're describing? Is it a loss? And so whether you're leading a team, that may be one of the most important things you take away from this meeting. If you're leading a team and you have to introduce something that's different, first of all, think it through. Why are you doing it? I think it was Michael Hyatt, the great leadership group, that said people lose their way when they lose their why. Yeah. So never lead. A lot of times untrained leaders will always lead with what? Man, I've heard from God. Let me tell you what we're going to do. <laughs> and people just like, yeah. they'll nod their head and smile and go inside their trembling. Because why is the great stabilizer? Yes. Why are we going to do this? Answer the why. Then get to what? Then how? Then where? Whatever, whatever my sequence was, I forgot. I can give you an example right here. We, 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 uh, Murda, Jessica, and I, we had a meeting about all the communication process in our church. We were, we were looking at our, um, our visitors' cards. And we were, I mean, we went back on this for half an hour. What do we want to put on there? What, names, addresses, you know, date of birth, DNA sample. What, what do we want on this card? All, all this stuff. We, we, we were going back and forth different ideas. And I stopped and I said, why are we doing this? And in five minutes, we finished the card. We, know what, we knew what the purpose of the card was, so we knew exactly what we needed to put on it. Within five minutes, we were done. So you got to know why you're doing something. Right? The, we're not just changing to change. <clears throat> There's a reason sure. we're making a move. And the reason I would mention that in the context of this conversation is because a lot of times we throw this incredible change at people without answers and then demonize them when they resist it. Right. When true. a lot of times they wouldn't, have, they, they wouldn't have become the devil if we had just made a compelling case, Good. an educated, 
prepared, compelling case. Right. It's amazing how a devil can go from a devil to a saint if they just have the information to say, okay, I, I see that. Because, and if you have that posture in your mind that part of your pastor's job, job is to introduce change. That's part of his job. And so it was, I wanted him to come and do the status quo. Well, some people are, are in that mode, but you don't get much good by just keeping what you've always had. If you're going to move forward, somebody's got to introduce change at, at some level. And I think managing that change wisely and godly in a godly way and leading with the why really helps people embrace that and see it. Sometimes... Uh I think that a lot of people get change mixed up with compromise. That's right. And uh, there's a fine line there. I don't know how. I mean, you could just talk about that a little bit because uh, we like with the pastor changing things around. It's mm-hmm. misconstrued in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. And so yeah. then they're like, well, they're compromising. You know, they're not, you know, they don't see that change. Mm-hmm. I understand. Yeah, and, and the truth is, just by definition, compromise would be a change, just not necessarily a good change. Compromise can be good. It can be bad, depending on the need, you know. I mean, yeah, I know in the context you're sharing. Moral, yeah, I get that. They say it as a moral like compromise. Like a moral compromise God's called us to be that. Pastor Winston moved away from it. Right, right. right. I, I get that. Uh, I, I think that goes back to the why. Just being sure that when we, first of all, if we introduce change, make sure that it's needed. It's not just preference, but there is a purpose that it serves. And that's where that why. I don't mean just say, well, let me tell you why. Let me pray into that why. Just say, "Is is this a legit why? Then once you have sorted that out, being able to make that compelling argument that this is the reason that the Lord spoke to me to do that. Or this is, you know, we don't have an outreach program. So it's important that we do this, this, and this to try to reach new people. And, you know, having a clear why and then going through that template steps, I think will help with that. But I do understand, and we do run the risk, no matter what, of being misunderstood in terms. I mean, you know, there are times that people just can't adapt, you know, because some change is going to create an environmental difference. And if you look in the organic world, I mean, not every creature can, you go from desert to rainforest, some creatures are not going to be able to make that change, you know. And so I'm thinking, okay, if you're going to do that, make sure God has said do, you know, make sure there's a mandate from the Holy Spirit to do it, not just, well, I like rainforest as opposed to desert, you know. We can't trivialize changes if it's nothing. That's the point I'm trying to make. It's a big deal to people. And it's necessary, but we've got to be considerate of their situation in that process. I'm going to hold the questions right now. Uh, stick around. We'll be here, but I, I need to turn people loose. I, yeah, and I'm I can sorry. stay here. Th- this is me. I geek out on this stuff, and I can do this all... I, I could, As long as he's... I could keep him up all night in the hotel asking him these type of questions. I could. He'd get tired of me. But we got, we got to wrap it up.